0: Good to see you here today. Well, believe it or not, when I was in middle school, I was an entrepreneur. In fact, I think I was probably about 13 years old, and I started a lawn mowing business, which I wish I would have kept up. And uh, I learned a valuable lesson one day. After I finished mowing a lawn, I, uh, I, I, I obviously wasn't old enough to drive, and so I would be on my bicycle, and I would have the handle of the lawn mower... You know the, the the handle there, and I could actually ride my bike. Anybody else do that? I could actually ride my bike and hold the lawnmower, but yet I'm going to pay attention to what you were to what you were doing. Obviously, if you're going to bike with one hand and hold the lawnmower, and and I can remember so clearly as if it happened yesterday. I mowed a lawn and I got done with the lawn, and I looked at the lawn and thought that looks really good. I mean, there's nobody else around but but you at age 13 are probably one of the best lawn mowers that's ever been put on the planet. And I started down the street, headed to my home again, and I wanted to get one last look at the lawn that I had just cut. And so I can remember riding my bicycle like this and taking one last look as I ran into a parked car. Bent the handlebars of my bike way up, you know, scuffed my knees, the whole thing. And I learned this valuable lesson at age 13, uh, that uh, the principle that we're taught in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, which says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. You know, pride has been a problem with humanity since the very beginning of recorded history. If you were to take your Bible and go to the book of Genesis, you would read early on there that God creates Adam and Eve, and very quickly, they want to be like God. They think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, and they're convinced by Satan that they should attain to that level, that they should have what pleases them. And most of you here know the story. This leads to disobedience and the birth of sin into the world. If you go into the New Testament in Mark chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples have just been on a journey. And in Mark chapter 9 in verse 33, it says, and when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, he asked this group of disciples. This is a great passage. I wish we could take off and just talk about this this morning. He asked this question. As if he didn't know, right? He's the Son of God. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He has all of those attributes of God. He says to them, What were you discussing along the way? I heard you talking. What were you talking about? As if he didn't know. (laughs) They knew that he knew. Verse 34 says, But they kept silent. (laughs) Why did they do that? The text says, For on their way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest? Can you imagine it? You're a disciple of Jesus. He's teaching you, he's training you because he's going, to, he's going to suffer and bleed and die on a cross and he's going to leave you with this gospel message and he's entrusting it into your care. And they're back there and Jesus is up ahead walking maybe with another couple of them and they're going, who do you think really is the greatest? I mean, who do you think he loves the most? I mean, have you watched me and how I interact with people? My ministry skill set obviously he sees me as the greatest. And they get to where they're going, and Jesus says, what were you talking about? Imagine answering that question. If that weren't enough, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came upon him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Think about that. You go up to Jesus and you say, I got this plan. You do whatever it is that I want you to do. We're not saying this to another person, to the Son of God. And he said to them, he played along with them, what do you want me to do for you? And verse 37 says, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. We've talked amongst ourselves, and as we look at the rest of these morons that you've chosen were definitely the best. So if you'd give one of us the left seat and one of us the right seat, that's what we would like for you to do. You see, pride really is at the center of all sin. If you think about this morning where you are, if you're struggling in your marriage, I guarantee you that pride at the end of the day is at the center of the issues in your marriage. If you have interpersonal conflict with coworkers, with your kids, with your neighbors, any horizontal relationships on this planet, I guarantee you, when you come to the end, pride is at the very center. In fact, James asked the question in James chapter 4. He says, what's the source of conflicts among you? Where do those conflicts come from that you have with other people? And he answers it simply. He says, we want the things that we want and we want things our way because we are the center of the universe. And when we don't get it, we're ticked off. Here's the truth. While in our depravity, we are born selfish, wanting our way, wanting to be acknowledged for who we are, this always leads to misery. Have you seen that to be true in your life? It always leads to misery. When you pursue you and the agenda of you and you become the center of the universe, it always leads to misery. In fact, we might say it this way, to be me-centered is ultimately to live in misery, and to be others-centered, as you'll see in this text this morning in, the, in Philippians chapter 2, to be others-centered will equal joy. Me-centered always equals misery. Others-centered always equals joy. And you know, as great as the fellowship was of the believers in the church at Philippi, uh, we get a glimpse that they did have some issues. And it really encourages me that they had some issues. Because if you read at the beginning of chapter 1, you think Paul talks about how much he loves them and appreciates them, and you think these must be awesome people. They must not have any issues in their church. Until it gets to chapter 4, if you thumb ahead a little bit uh, on your uh, phone or in your Bible there, you'll see when they come to chapter 4, Paul urges Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony. Can you imagine that? Here's two women, though, Yodia and Syntyche. Probably what they're arguing about is whose name's really the worst, right? Um, you know, my, mine's not quite as bad as Syntyche. Yodia. Well, you're, you know, we don't know what they're arguing about it, but they're not living in harmony, and Paul urges them to live in harmony. How about that? You have a strained relationship with them, someone in your church fellowship. The apostle Paul writes a letter to your church. And he calls you out by name. And if it's not bad enough that everybody in the congregation there at Philippi knows that you got something going on with you, for all of eternity, your names are recorded in God's word. How about that? I wonder what that would be like if we were to have our little skirmishes, our little disunity that maybe even exists right here at Northwest, if it were to be exposed in scripture for all of eternity. God said his word will never return void. Not one jot or one tittle will ever be messed with. (laughs) And there's our stuff kind of hanging right out there. Yodi and Syntyche, we can't get along together, but they wish they had a do-over. And so Paul finds it necessary here in chapter two to plead with these people to be unified, for their selfishness to be replaced with selflessness. And for the next two weeks, we're going to spend time here in verses 1 to 11, today 1 through 4, and next week verses 5 through 11. So turn with me, if you don't already have it there, to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 4 specifically, but I want to go ahead and I want to read the whole text to you so that, you, so that we read it in context. And then we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 today and 5 to 11 next week. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love and participation Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, it did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What an incredible text. In fact, one of the richest texts in all of the New Testament, certainly in the book of Philippians, the richest, most deep doctrinal truths are here. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. So here's what Paul is really saying. Paul is is basically asking the people this question, is Jesus working for you? If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how's it going? How is that relationship working its way out horizontally as you live amongst other people? And I think that's a fair question for any of us to ask ourselves who have known Jesus for any length of time, how's that working out for you? Uh, We've said it a lot in the last several months that to have a relationship with Jesus means that we have a transformed, we have a changed life. If there's no transformation in your life, can I plead with you to examine yourself to make sure that you've truly come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus? Because that's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. And Paul is simply saying to the Philippians... In fact, he, he's assuming that the condition is true, that they have become followers of Jesus, and Paul's attempting to take them back to the supernatural event that occurred when they came into a relationship with Jesus. And he says, there's four motivations then for what I'm about ready to tell you. He asked them, have you experienced any encouragement in Christ? If we were to go back uh, to the book of John in chapter 14, you remember Jesus is talking with his disciples, and as he's talking with them... He tells them he's going to leave, uh, but not to be fearful of that, not to be discouraged with that, because he's going to leave for them a, the Greek word is a paraclete. The idea is a comforter, somebody that will come alongside of them. And Paul's saying, have you experienced any of that in Christ? When it seemed like there was nobody else around, that nobody that understood you, have you experienced what it means to be encouraged in Christ? You see, there's sometimes when we go through difficult times in our life and people come around us and they, they try to help us, they try to encourage us, but there's times when we'll only be encouraged by the encouragement that comes from being in Christ. And that is the relationship that the Spirit of God has with us at the moment of salvation, that the Holy Spirit of God comes to indwell us. He comes to take over our lives. And it is at that point that he makes, takes up residence in our heart. And so while those friends, that spouse, uh, that other significant person in your life may not always be there, God is always there. That's when we receive encouragement in Christ. And Paul is saying, have any of you experienced that? Do you know what it's like to be so lonely, so afraid, and yet understand the encouragement that comes from Christ. And then he says, secondly, how about any comfort from his love? Have you ever been comforted by the fact that God loves you? Do you sense the love of God that he created you, and he has wanted and desired to have a relationship with you? It's puzzling to me how so many of our songs that we sing in worship, we talk about loving God and how much he loves us. Oh, how great the Father's love for us. And we sing, and, and many of us as we worship, we, we lift our hands acknowledging the love of God. But many of us sometimes don't really acknowledge by receiving the comfort of his love. Because we haven't fully embraced what it means to be loved by God. What it means to be accepted by the God of the universe. He says, if any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, and then thirdly, any participation in the spirit. And you'll remember back in chapter one, we talked about this Greek word koinonia. And I mentioned to you in chapter one, how that re- word refers to participation. It refers to partnership. Um, the word we get from, uh, in the English language, is this word fellowship. And it, it's what you enjoy when you're involved with God's people and things that matter. And what Paul is saying is, have any of you experienced any participation in the Spirit? Do you know what it's like to be in relationship with brothers and sisters? You know what was so encouraging to me just a few minutes ago? That all eight of these people that are up here that, that have come forward and said, we want to serve you as deacons in this church. And, and Matt asked the question, what is it that's so special about uh, Northwest? It wasn't about a program. You know what it was about? It was about relationships. And so many of you could stand up right now and you could say, I have experienced that. I've experienced what it means to participate together, to be partnered together in the spirit. I'm always encouraged in the first hour because there's always one life group that always sits right here. You guys are all in life group together, right? They're all in life group together. And I was standing back there this morning kind of looking at you obviously from the back and going, I wonder if they really like each other, right? Or if you just kind of have hung out enough that you go, we're kind of in this thing. We're like stuck, right? I don't think that that's true. As I've spent time with this group of people and some of them individually, I know that they deeply love one another. Because why? Because you participate in the same mission. You understand that koinonia, that fellowship that comes that can only happen when you're in Christ and when you have brothers and sisters He says, have you gotten any encouragement, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit? And then lastly, he says, is there any affection and sympathy? Have you noticed the closer that you get to God, or this should be true, the closer closer that you get to God, the more you care about people? That should be true in your life. You recognize that, right? Jesus said in his sermon on, on the mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, indicating that a merciful heart is the sign of having received mercy. Compassion and mercy flow uh, from the lives of those who have experienced new life in Jesus. Can I ask you this morning, is there anything about you that is affectionate and sympathetic towards people? I can remember several months ago... As, as we were getting so many images from the Middle East and, and the crisis in Syria. Some of you will remember well that little boy that was sitting on the seat. Remember that? That was sitting on the seat in the ambulance. Not a tear in his eyes, just a blood-stained face. Let me ask you, when you see things like that, when you see tragedy in our world, inside the body, outside of the body, not necessarily in your little world, is there affection and is there sympathy for that? One way you can know that you've experienced new life in Christ is when there is deep affection and deep sympathy for those things that really aren't part of your own little world. They're outside of your world, but you have affection and you have sympathy. Paul is asking them to go back to the beginning when that supernatural relationship with Jesus began and what things they became a part of. And then he says this, if these things are true, Paul says this, complete my joy complete my joy. Remember Paul's situation. He's been falsely accused. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a soldier from the Imperial Guard 24-7. He's waiting for a trial which ultimately could lead to his execution. He's already written that his heart is full of joy. And you remember what we've said our working definition of joy is. Joy is the supernatural satisfaction in the person, the purposes, and the people of Jesus. He's supernaturally satisfied with those Uh, because he's discovered who Jesus is and he's totally committed to the gospel message to that purpose whether it cost him as Jerry talked about last week whether in life or in death he's totally satisfied but he loves these people more than any pastor I believe could ever love a group of people and then he says to them complete my joy His plea is primarily based on these things that they've experienced because of the supernatural work of God in their lives. But then he's telling them kind of the icing on the cake would be, if you really want to complete my joy, if you really want to give me a deep sense of satisfaction... I thought about it this week. It's like having a really, really awesome meal, right? Whatever that is for you, all right? Happens for me at Mexican restaurants, various and sundry other places. But you experience this really great meal, and you're totally satisfied with the meal, right? And then the waitress or the waiter comes around, and they say to you, what? Do you want some dessert? And you think, no, it's a ripoff, right? No, you think, yeah, I, I really do want some dessert. And so, After experiencing that great satisfaction, then you get this last thing, and it's a piece of moist chocolate cake for me, with a white buttercream icing, with two big dollops of vanilla bean ice cream laying right on top of them. And then that's like complete, right? You had an awesome meal, and now you completed it with a, great, with a great dessert. Paul is saying, hey, if you, want, if you really just want to, uh, figuratively speaking, if you want to put the icing on the cake, if you want my joy to be complete. You know, the writer of Hebrews said this, as he was writing basically to those of us that would, that would be sheep in a flock and would have shepherds, would have pastors that would minister to and serve us, The writer of Hebrews said this, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls. Do you understand that? We watch over your souls. And it says, they must give an account. In other words, one day, those of us that shepherd over you locally here at this place we call Northwest Community Church, one day we will give an account for your soul. It's pretty awesome responsibility. It's not just that Jerry or I are going to speak for 35 or 40 minutes every every Sunday and you you take it and you do whatever you want to with it. No, we give an account for your soul. And Paul says this, he says, he wants, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says this, that he wants that to happen so that we do it with joy and not with grief. You help us do that, right? You you either make that process something that is very joyful, and we do it with great joy and with deep satisfaction, or you cause great grief. And the writer of Hebrews says, Don't do that, for that's unprofitable for you. It's a great thing, I think, when people bring joy to the hearts of those that care for them spiritually. And that's what Paul is saying here complete my joy. Go all the way in your faith journey. I mean now, go all in. And in fact, next week, and I can't wait for next week, because when we get to verse 5, it's known as the great kenosis passage of Scripture. The explanation of what God did when he sent Jesus to this earth, and all that involved for Jesus to leave heaven and come in the incarnation and, and become one of us and live amongst us for 33 years, and then ultimately to suffer, to bleed, to die for the sins of mankind. That's going to be our example that we're going to see next week. But Paul is saying, pursue those things with passion by becoming what Jesus exemplified for you in his birth and his life and death. And so, in what ways, Paul, would you like us to do that? Okay, we want to make you happy. We want to go all in. We want your joy to be complete. We want you to be convinced that we get it. Here in the church of Philippi, he says this, be of the same mind. Now, it's important for you to understand here, Paul is not talking about uh, uh, simple doctrinal or moral standards, right? Some of us just can't get over certain stuff and, and can't be of the same mind because we're convinced that we have to agree on every single little thing. In this context, being of the same mind means to actively strive to achieve common understanding and genuine agreement, We should always be focusing on the main thing. And what is the main thing? We talk about it here at Northwest all the time. The main thing is Jesus. It's the gospel. That's the big deal. We'll never agree on everything. In fact, I'm convinced that some of you, if you sat down with me for long enough, you wouldn't agree with me on a lot of things, right? Or I might not agree with you on some things. We're never going to agree on everything, even most things, but we can agree on one thing. We can have the same mind with regard to our mission. Can I ask you this morning, are you mature enough at this point in your faith that you can make joy complete by being of one mind and focusing on those things that really matter? Then he goes on to say, be of the same mind, but also have the same love. Now, it'd be easy for us to look at this text and talk about what he's talking about, that we should all love God equally, right? I mean, you love Jesus, you know, and then I say, shout back, I love Jesus, yes, I do. I love Jesus, how about you? And you go, I love Jesus, yes, I do. It's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about us having the same love for Jesus. He, he's talking about us having the same love for other people that we do life with in the context of a local church. Now think about how significant that is. Paul is saying that, that we're not supposed to have favorites. We're not supposed to prefer certain people over other people. A lot of you, by the way, love to um, uh, hold pastors to that standard, right? I mean, you think, just treat us all the same. Right? Don't, don't look at any of us differently. But sometimes... We're okay with the congregation in general, kind of preferring other people above people. In James chapter one and verse 27, James says, "Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. You know where I'm going, some of you that know your Bibles, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction." <laughs> you say, "Well, that doesn't sound very, very thrilling. I mean, the orphans and the widows? I mean, what are those people like? I mean, the widows, they're grieving. They've lost something. The orphans, the orphans, they don't have any parents. They don't have anybody to take care of them. If I were to go visit them and get involved in their lives, that might cost me something. That's James' point. Isn't it easy to like and be around the people that we've known and loved for a long period of time? I knew what I was preaching about this morning, and you didn't. So um, I just paid attention to this a little bit this morning. And I did it for myself too, but I watched some of you that immediately as you came in those doors, you started connecting with people that you know and you feel comfortable with. In fact, when we dismissed you a few moments ago to get up and go mingle around, what did some of you do? Immediately, what did you do? You went for familiar face, you know? You know, I I haven't talked to this person, I haven't seen this person. You go, you engage with them, you hug them, you know, you start talking about your kids or about what happened this week. Uh, meantime there's somebody else that's kind of standing there that's never been here before and it's a really awkward time right some of you can relate to this you just experienced it it's a really awkward time everybody else is mingling and interacting and there you are all alone see we have a tendency to go to those people that are most familiar uh, with us and us with them always remember there was a time when your best friend you did not know ever think about that when I was a youth pastor inevitably one of the one of the greatest challenges would be when a new family would come into our church, and they would send their middle schooler or their high schooler into our ministry and at the end of of my youth ministry years, it was in a large church we had a lot of kids, and it was very overwhelming and inevitably, the parent would say to me, um, "Well, you know Joey doesn't know anybody, and he had a lot of friends at his church you know there and as I had opportunity to connect with, with high school kids, so often I would say to them, Hey, tell me about your best friend, or, or tell me about your group of friends that you had when you lived in Chicago. And they would go, Well, you know, I had this one guy, and we've known each other forever. Well, forever. You know, he's like 15. So you're going, for, for, Even if it's forever, it's not really that long. But when did you meet? Well, I met him when I was 12. All right, so it's only been three years, right? really hadn't been that long of time. But I've known him forever, and we're like best friends. So I say, So, When you were age 11, you didn't know him, right? I never really thought about that. So there was a time when you had to step out of your comfort zone and enter into into a different, a new relationship. And little did you know that over a period of time, you would really grow to love this person. You would become best friends. Do you know that's true for every single one of us here this morning? There was a time when your best friends, the people that you're closest to, when you did not know them, you did not enjoy a relationship with one another and at some point they and or you took an opportunity to step out a little bit and now they're some of your best friends. Isn't that true? I mean, I look again down at this group of people. I know when each of them came to Northwest. So I know that they didn't know each other at some particular point and now they do life together. They're deeply connected. Paul is saying this. Not that you can't have good friends, not that you can't have great friends, but that you should have the same love for all people inside the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. On a purely emotional level, having an equal love for others is impossible. But do you know the word that is used here for love in this text? We talk about it a lot around here. What's the word? It's agape love. This is a love that makes a choice to love. So important. Some love is based on, uh, you know, you're in high school, your eyes catch her eyes, um, or your eyes thought they caught her eyes, and there's a deep, romantic, physical attraction that happens. That is not agape love. Agape love doesn't have any external factors other than it is a love that happens based on a choice to love. Love. Paul is saying here, make the same choice to love everybody that you come in contact with in and outside of this body of believers. I can tell you this, that if we do that, if some of you who are doing that continue to do it, if some of you who aren't doing that start doing that, this place will be irresistible to both the follower of Jesus and the one who is seeking to understand the claims of Christ on their life. It will be irresistible. We're to love people equally, and that's what makes a great church. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, we love one another with brotherly affection. We outdo one another in showing honor. We contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. One pastor said it this way, and I love this that the the gospel is the great leveler, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, there are no tears, right? Doesn't matter what you do for a living, doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter what's happened in your past, at the foot of the cross, when we come in here, if we're truly, if we've truly been transformed and, and, and changed by a relationship with Jesus, we have the same love for all people. Can I challenge you when we dismiss here in just a few moments to look for that person that you don't know and show genuine affection towards that person? That looks differently for some of you than it does for Jerry, right? For Jerry, uh, that means he's going to pick you up and hold you up and, you know, shake you and do all that. It may look differently for you, but show the same love. Have the same love, being in full accord, that means united in spirit, literally one soul. It's only used, by the way, this term is only used here in the New Testament. To be united in the spirit is to live in selfless harmony with fellow believers, It involves a deep and passionate concern for God, His work, His flock, the gospel. We're to be united in spirit and we're to be of one mind, intent on one purpose, working together for the same cause, thinking of one thing. What Paul is describing here is the joy of selflessness, the joy of looking out for the needs of other people way above the needs of yourself. What it looks like to be other-centered rather than to do what comes totally natural, at least to me, right? It comes totally natural for me to be me-centered, for me to focus on what makes me happy, what makes me look good. And Paul answers the question of how we or to have this kind of unity. Remember, he's writing to a church, followers of Jesus who worship together, who live together, and then he's telling them, this is how you do it. If you've experienced all these things, make my joy complete by doing these things. And here's how you do it. And he gives five ways. And we're going to go through them so incredibly quickly you won't believe it. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. (laughs) And I stop there and go, all right, how do you do that? But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The beginning of this verse where it says do, in the Greek text, the verb do is not present. But the grammatical form uh, uh, expresses a negative command. In other words, you could just scratch do out, and it just says nothing. In other words, nothing should come from selfishness selfishness, what is that? It's the attitude which causes us to do whatever is necessary to accomplish our goal. Whatever we think is best for us, whatever we see as the end result, we do whatever it takes to accomplish that goal. Aristotle, by the way, used the word of politicians. Does that make it more understandable to you? That it was selfishness. They sought political office, not for the well-being of their constituents, but for what that might do for them. Paul says nothing should be done from selfishness. That's not bad enough. He says nothing from empty conceit. Empty conceit is when we act based on an inflated view of ourselves and our own importance. It's when we, we, we serve or we, we do something that's good, but we do it to be seen in order that other people might praise us for what we've done. And we're going, no, 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 you know, you don't, have, just, that's just what God, God just gave me the opportunity. I was just present and I was just able to be used. Come on, give it to me. Tell me how great I am. That's empty conceit. It's an overinflated self-image, image, exaggerated self-appreciation. Selfish ambition, then, pursues personal goals, but empty conceit is a little bit different in that it seeks personal glory and acclaim. And that's what our selfish hearts tell us to do, don't they? Make sure everything is the way we think it should be done. Make sure everything happens in order that our goal might be achieved. And notice every single thing that I do and applaud me for every single thing that I do. And Paul says, do nothing with that attitude. Everything that you do to promote yourself this week will ultimately produce misery. Have you found that to be true? All of this stuff right here, no, no, no. Give it to me, give it to me. All the things that you do when you step on the necks and the the bodies of other people so that you can accomplish your goal. In the end, your goal will not bring you satisfaction. It will bring you misery. And the reverse is true, that everything that you do for others this week will ultimately bring and produce joy. So a principle that you find all the way throughout scripture is this, that we have to eliminate or remove some things in our lives. But I think some, sometimes we just, we just remove it and we don't replace it. But the principle that we see all the way through Scripture is not only to remove things, but we replace them. We do something different. And so Paul gives the last two points. He says, Humbly and carefully see other people as more important than yourself. In the Greek word humi- world, humility was not considered something to be desired. And if we're honest, in 2017, it's really not desired, Right? We do a lot of this. No, 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 no. But in the end of the day, we like to be praised. We like to be told how good we are and that we were noticed for the good that we did. But here's what's amazing. As you look back at human history over the last 2,000 years, the lowliness, the humility that was despised by the Greeks and makes such little sense ultimately to our depraved hearts has become the highest virtue for those of us who would dare to live a life that brings satisfaction to our creator. One theologian said it this way, instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion, the Philippians are called to humility, the lowliness of heart, which agrees to treat and think of others preferentially. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, not a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than to one's own abilities or resources. And so we humbly and we carefully see other people as more important than ourselves, and then we don't just look out for what's best for us and for ours. Here's what I want. This is what I need. This is what I think is best. We do that in a local church, by the way, with programs, don't we? We ought to do this. We ought to not do this because I don't prefer it. We do it with worship songs. I right, we shouldn't sing that song because I don't like that song. I don't even understand that song. He sings that song too high. I can't even sing when we sing that song. And I know they like that song, but I don't get that song. How come we can't sing my songs? You see how it makes its way out in the church? You sit in a life group, and why are we studying that? Why are we talking about this? You realize I got problems with my teenagers? We need to read some book on parenting teenagers so I can survive. I don't care about what they preached about on Sunday. What's best for me? Just yesterday on I'll just say a local website that is for a particular neighborhood. There was a big debate that started over the new fence that's been put up at the clubhouse with the nice new grass. And the question was asked is that for dogs or for kids? Because I don't have a dog. My kid's afraid of dogs. In fact, my kid's not only afraid of dogs, I think he's allergic to dogs. Pretty serious, right, if, you're, if you you got an allergy to dogs, and I understand some people do. And so the debate started, last time I looked, about 30 comments long with one lady saying, I think it should be about the kids who cares about dogs. We didn't spend all this money in our, in our homeowners association so that we could have dogs run around on nice grass fenced in. I want it to be about the kids. And the next lady would say, Well, I have a dog and I'm really thankful that I think it's become a dog part. And for the next 30 comments, looking out for me. And what Paul says is that we ought to instead look out for others to be willing to do what's best for others. There's so much more <laughs> that could be said. I watched this week the story of Desmond Doss. Some of you know who I'm talking about and his heroism in World War II. Young Desmond enlisted in the army at the age of 23 in spite of being offered a deferment because of his position working in the shipyards. He entered into the service as a conscientious objector. If you're not familiar with that term, in this particular context it meant that he did not believe in killing people, he did not believe in violence... And he didn't even want to hold a gun, and still he felt obligated to give his life, if necessary, for his country. And he went into the army, and he served as a combat medic. He was awarded the Bronze Star for saving the lives of no fewer than 75 fellow soldiers at the Battle of Okinawa. He was initially mocked and berated by his fellow soldiers. In fact, one of them said this. I wrote this down as I was watching the movie because I thought it was so significant. One soldier said to him, you don't win wars by giving up your life. And young Desmond replied, oh, but you do. As I watched the story of this brave young man this week, I couldn't help but think that his commitment to give up his life is a great picture of what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We win. We do the most for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we totally give up ourselves for the benefit of other people. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, forever would lose his life. For my sake, we'll do what? He'll find it. And that's what Paul says we're supposed to do. You can make my joy complete by being that kind of a church. Next week, we're going to look at the perfect example Of this type of life. And that is the humility, the humanity, and yet the divinity of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth that's found in it. And uh, God, I, I just pray that we will live that kind of lives as the people at Northwest, that we will be deeply, deeply committed to other people, not just simply our own selfish ambitions in our empty conceit. To be me-centered is ultimately to bring misery. To be other-centered ultimately brings that deep satisfaction of joy that can only be found when we lose ourselves, when we give up our lives for the sake of other people. May that be true in my life. May that be true in the lives of people that I live with and do life with here at Northwest. We pray in Jesus' name.